This podcast was produced in cooperation with the Center for Human Rights Research at the University of Manitoba and through funding support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council Knowledge Synthesis Grant in collaboration with Infrastructure Canada. The production of this podcast was made possible with technical assistance from the University of Manitoba's History Students Association and their podcast, All Things History with Amhiza. The Centre for Human Rights Research at the University of Manitoba is located on the original lands of the Anishinaabeg, Cree, and Red River Métis people, where Treaty 1 reminds us of our relationships to each other and these lands. The water that sustains us comes from Shoal Lake on Treaty 3 territory. These are the histories that we work within and try to honour with our research, thoughts and actions. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Missing the Bus podcast. I am your host, Olivia McDonald-Major. Today, I will be talking to the three primary researchers of the study, Missing the Bus, Indigenous Women and Two-Spirit Plus People and Public Transit in Western Canada, about the connections between uneven mobility and mobility justice from an intersectional feminist context in Western Canada, with a particular focus on Manitoba. So let me introduce each of the researchers. Dr. Corinne Duhamel is an Indigenous historian, the former Director of Research for the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, and a Special Advisor with Crown and Indigenous Relations and Northern Affairs Canada. Welcome, Corinne. Hello. Dr. Adele Perry is a settler historian of gender and colonization and the director of the Center for Human Rights Research at the University of Manitoba. Welcome, Adele. Thank you, Olivia. Dr. Jocelyn Thorpe is a settler scholar of women's and gender studies and history and the Director of the Center for Creative Writing and Oral Culture at the University of Manitoba. Welcome, Jocelyn. Thank you. Hi. To start, I thought it would be a good idea to define a few of the terms we will be using. In this podcast, as in the report, we are using the term Two Spirit Plus as a shorthand to describe people whose gender identity and presentation fall outside of a heterosexual gender binary model and may include people who identify as queer, non-binary, lesbian, gay, bi or pansexual, transgender, transsexual, gender non-conforming or two-spirit. The report broadly defines Western Canada as including Northwestern Ontario, 
Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and British Columbia. We define intra-city public transit as transit that operates within a city, including to or from neighboring suburban areas, and intra-city public transit as all schedules and routes other than charter that operate beyond the limits defined under local or suburban intra-city transit. Lastly, the project utilized a modified version of Jarrett Walker's definition of public transit, who argues that public transit must have regularly scheduled trips that have different origins, destinations, and purposes. While this excludes a range of practices, including carpools, school buses, taxis, and both formal and informal rideshare arrangements, such as Uber, we also recognize the importance of informal community and First Nation responses to insufficient transit, including rideshares and First Nation-run medical transportation. Missing the Bus describes the history and current state of intercity and intracity public transit in Western Canada. How does public transit in Western Canada differ from public transit in areas such as the Windsor-Quebec City Corridor? And how has public transit in Western Canada changed in the last 30 years? Yeah, so good questions, Olivia. I mean, it's funny because we don't tend to think about transit as something that varies historically, but it is very much something that I think history provides this really kind of critical way of seeing just exactly the extent to which things have changed. And I think what it really shows us is a couple of options that people had. And like, it was never this like great equitable moment. You know, people's access to transit depended on their economic resources. It depended on informal and formal practices of segregation. It depended on politics of kind of gender coding. It depended on kind of issues of safety and the absence of safety. Keeping all of that in mind, I still think one of the things we need to think about is how within really a generation or two, the kind of public transit landscape of Western Canada has really radically shifted. And in that sense, it provides an example of one of the things historians like to talk about, which is that history, we sometimes have this expectation that it shows us the story of things kind of just getting better and better and better. But what we really see in the context of, of these public transit questions in Western Canada is you know, a history of pretty significant and marked decline in a couple of different ways. I mean, one of the most obvious ones is rail travel. Up until late 70s, there was two trains a day that went from Winnipeg to Vancouver. A couple of things occurred having to do with federal funding and regulation of the way both transportation railways, but also passenger railways, worked and that all added up to really train travel becoming increasingly impossible and now I think there's one train that leaves from Winnipeg to the west coast per week shares the tracks with freight trains and so has this kind of massively unpredictable schedule and it's also very expensive and so really within since you know the late 70s we've seen a seismic shift in what's available as far as traveling in and around western Canada by rail we also see that with some of the northern railroads and in particular you know the train to Churchill, which received appropriately a fair bit of attention. But we see kind of the politics of privatization, the politics of 
putting the interests of freight before the interests of people occurring in lots of different ways that makes all of that less of a possibility. I think what we've also seen at the same time is really diminishing kind of possibilities of travel by the kind of the unsexy uh, form of bus travel, you know, which is really something that doesn't tend to have a lot of romance attached to it. We have romance of the great days of rail. You know, there's no board games about like the great days of taking the bus across Western Canada. But for a lot of people, bus transit has been a way that they got from place to place. Um, and it has been a way made it possible to move from, from one location to another. And I think what we've really witnessed, certainly since the, the 70s, but really escalating within the last decade or so, is the real shift towards the shuttering of different public bus transit options in Western Canada. Manitoba kind of has, has a somewhat distinct you know, history in all of these things, but we see this happening with our neighbors to the west in Saskatchewan, which is the only province that had its own provincial-run bus system, the Saskatchewan Transit Company, um, and that was shuttered in 2017 as kind of part of sort of a, of a general dismantling of public services in Saskatchewan. These were years that witnessed the kind of closure of small bus lines that, that kind of were available to people in a range of different contexts in Manitoba throughout um, these years. And every once in a while, when I'm kind of reading through different sort of old newspapers and stuff, these sorts of bits and pieces crop up of the different kinds of bus routes that were available. But I saw one this morning was from July 1967. And it was like the Manitoba Motor Coach Company, and it had buses leaving daily from Wasagamon and Riding Mountain Park to Dauphin and Flintlawn, and also leaving daily south to Brandon and, you know, parts south and west. And what we've really seen is just the slow erosion of those sorts of services. The really obvious one is the bus that once connected Winnipeg to Selkirk, which has been through a number of iterations, but has finally kind of ceased to exist altogether. And then all of that was cemented when Western Canada's Greyhound routes were shuttered in, in 2018. And Greyhound was a private company, it's an American company, so it's hard to romanticize in sort of a sense of the halcyon days of public service, because it wasn't that. Greyhound also was kind of kept in the game in the Canadian context by kind of a network of regulations, which gave it access to certain routes, but it obliged it to, to carry less profitable routes. It was also kept through a range of different provincial subsidies. And what we saw is Western Canadian uh, provincial governments elected who were less committed to keeping those services alive and viable and within the context of Western Canada, in particular of Manitoba. And with that, Greyhound pulled out from all of its Western Canadian routes in 2018. That was followed by a decision in 2021 to pull out all of its Canadian operate together. And so really what we've seen, you know, since 2017, since the closure of the STC, is a real kind of absolute kind of sea change in what is available in public transit linking settlements to settlements, cities to cities across Western Canada. And I think it tends to be not something that we tend to view through kind of a feminist, intersectional, and anti-racist and indigenous lens. But one of the things that I sort of take some inspiration from 
is both sort of critical studies of transit justice, and that's a term that comes from Amy Scheller, who writes about transit justice as a particular form of justice. But also, I think of critical infrastructure studies, where sort of folks who are kind of committed to viewing infrastructure in kind of critical terms as something that tells us about state, about sovereignty, about possibility, but also something that makes certain things possible and forecloses other possibility at the same time. And I think we really need to think about the shifts that have happened, um, certainly within the last 50 years, but really in escalating kind of impact within the last 10 or 15 years in those terms and say, what does this mean for the possibilities of everybody to live lives where they are able to make choices about their own lives, where they're able to get from one place to another, to engage in community, to work, to visit, do all of the things that the good life involves. Um, what does all of this mean? And so those are, I think, are some of the questions around kind of the somewhat um, unappealing history of, you know, bus and public transit within the context of Manitoba. But I think it's actually really important and kind of tells us a lot. Thank you for that, Adele. At a time when global concern over the effects of fossil fuel consumption and climate change are at an all-time high, how is the decline in public transit infrastructure impacting our environment and land use? Well, I think at this stage in history, people know that we need to make massive changes if we want future generations of human and non-human beings to live on a thriving planet. And humans, like other animals, can't help but alter our world by living in it. But the kinds of footprints we leave are not predetermined. So I think there's a way in which when we talk about environmental stuff, it seems like humans are bad and everything that humans do is bad and is separate from the environment. And I think if we're going to make changes, we need to rethink that kind of idea. So... One example is transit. So how we get around, the distances we travel can profoundly shape the effects that we have on our world. But when we think at a micro level, for example, by trying to determine the best way to get from home to work and back, we might not perceive that small decisions are shaped by underlying assumptions about the character of our relationships with the rest of the world, right? We're just like, okay, I got a new job. Where is it? Where do I live? How am I going to get there? At the same time, our small decisions are shaped, as Adele talked about, by bigger ideas and infrastructure that work to make some options more appealing and also possible than other options. For instance, if there is no public transit options, it's impossible to take public transit to and from work. And we see that it's not always only the existence or not of it. It's the frequency, the safety, you know, the reliability. So there are lots of questions that aren't just with or without transit, but what kinds of transit is available to so if we want people to become more eco-friendly in their transportation, then we must have eco-friendly options available, which are also convenient, affordable, safe, and that they therefore make sense as a good choice uh, for people to make. An awareness of environmental and social justice issues has the potential to lead us to more sustainable infrastructure, which can in turn change our relationship with the non-human world by altering the size of our imprint. The opposite is also true. So by not investing in public transit, and especially this kind of idea of like, it's too expensive, but the costs go elsewhere, right? But by not investing in public transit, we make it impossible for people to choose transit as a feasible way to get around. We therefore have more cars on the road for those who can afford them and more isolation for those who can't. And we also have a bigger carbon footprint. 
So, and it's kind of interesting, historically speaking, because these are things that people have realized before. And if you look up uh, old pictures, for example, in Washington, you have in the early 50s, I think, pictures of here's what it would look like if, you know, all of these people were in cars, these 60 people in cars, and here's what it would look like if all these 60 people were on one streetcar. So you kind of can see the visual differences just in terms of uh, traffic. I think one of the things, too, that we came across in the secondary kind of literature that we looked at that is on kind of particular kind of gendered and feminist analysis of public transit use is sort of some questions around kind of gender and, and design of public transit. And I think we can also sort of extend those questions in the context that we're working in to also ask them, you know, around Indigenous people and communities and, and questions of public transit. Which is to say, like, not only what would it look like if there was ways of getting around that changed humans' uh, footprint on the world, as Jocelyn kind of put it, but also what would it look like if those systems were designed, you know, with women in mind? What would it look like if those systems of getting around were designed with Indigenous people and Indigenous community and their particular priorities and, and patterns and agendas in um, and that's something that, that sort of raised sometimes around questions, you know, of urban design and architecture, which is the presumptions about who um, the rider of transit is, you know, governs what it's built like. And so I think we can think about those questions there. Like, what would it be to have transit justice? What would it be to address this particular connection with that and colonization? And what would that also mean for those sort of wider ecological questions? But what would it be like for a transit system that actually had those things, not on the edges of its agenda, but right at the core of it? That segues very nicely into our next question. Missing the bus illustrates that the decline of safe and affordable intercity and intracity public transit options has real impact on different groups, especially Indigenous women, girls, and Two-Spirit Plus people in Western Canada. Why does the decline in public transit infrastructure impact Indigenous women, girls, and Two-Spirit Plus people differently than other Canadians? Thanks for the question, Olivia. I think what's really important to, to note, and Adele kind of uh, made reference to this, is the link between kind of the larger structures of colonization and the experiences of Indigenous women, girls, and 2SLGBTQQIA plus people, but also of Indigenous communities who, through various kind of colonial processes, have often been displaced or even further made remote more than, you know, they already uh, are um, by some of the policies or the lack of infrastructure like public transit. And so for people who, you know, especially as the way of life has changed in many communities away from, you know, hunting or fishing or trapping or all of the things that at one time could sustain you and your family and your community pretty comfortable as people are moving into a different kind of phase where they are needing to travel to work, where they're needing to travel to shop, where they're needing to travel to visit family members. 
I think for sure that has had a particularly negative impact on Indigenous women and girls uh, and Two-Spirit Plus people in Western Canada, but also on the communities writ large. None of the developments, um, and, and I say that kind of in, the, in terms of the decline of public transit options in the last uh, few decades, have evenly impacted any group. But I would say that for communities who are living in remote settings, and you know, in the report, for example, there's this map that traces all the different routes that still exist or that existed at one time. And you see, you know, eight to 10 different routes, but in there, there are dozens of other smaller communities. And so people already have to get to the hub to get on the route. But then when those routes are kind of reduced even further, it becomes increasingly dangerous. And, you know, the existence or, or the, the availability of, of public transit for travel, for things like school or medical appointments or work, doesn't mean that when those routes aren't available, people don't go. It means that people find other ways to get there. And what we saw in in terms of the national inquiry, uh, but as documented also by other reports, is that when people are needing to find a way to get where they need to go, regardless of the availability of routes, sometimes they are forced into unsafe situations. Right. And we've seen that in many, many cases. And a particularly famous example when it comes to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls is the Highway of Tears in British Columbia, but it happens elsewhere too. Right. And so I think that, you know, the need for safe and affordable transportation is something that disproportionately impacts certain populations because it forces you into situations that are even less safe than some of the options that might already exist. Thank you for making that connection to the broader history of public transit, Corinne. How have Indigenous communities responded to the decline in public transit infrastructure in Western Canada? Can more be done? I mean, I, I think, you know, more can always still be done. I think when we think we're done working on it, then we're failing to see the big picture. That said, I think like Indigenous communities have done a lot of work to try to find solutions to this. But the question is, like, should they have to, right? So there are safe ride services, for example, that have been established for people that need to go from centre to centre, where, you know, the drivers are kind of vetted and it provides an option for people to get from one place to another. But just because people are resilient and inventive and, you know, demonstrate ingenuity and creativity in confronting some of these deficits in infrastructure, I don't think that kind of subsumes the requirement or the, the, the duty of the state to provide such services as a matter or as a reflection of the needs that people have wherever they live or wherever they are. So, you know, there's lots of different things that have been established. There are new Indigenous transportation companies that are trying to fill some gaps here. There are safe ride services that have been established to try to provide, you know, a safe option, especially for women and Two-Spirit Plus people to get from one place to another safely. But all of these things that people have done to kind of fill in the gaps, I think just demonstrates how many gaps there are, right? And, and how many needs there are still to fill. 
Speaking of governmental responses to public transit, Missing the Bus examines policy recommendations for improved mobility justice in Canada, both those implemented and unfulfilled, proposed in so-called grey literature like governmental reports and policy papers. How have various levels of government in Western Canada received these recommendations, and where do problems persist? Okay, like I can, I can start on that one, then maybe uh, Corinne and Jocelyn can jump in there a little bit. I mean, I think we've seen in the last few years, you know, I think it's fair to say this is why the questions of the, the basic absence of intercity public transit in Western Canada is widely identified as a problem. I don't think there's been a huge amount of kind of generative solutions that have come from the level of either provincial or federal or in different senses, kind of municipal governments. There has been some cost-sharing arrangements, and particularly in the context of the Highway of Tears that Corinne mentioned earlier, where the provincial government in British Columbia has worked with um, Indigenous governments and the federal government to fund regular bus service. We haven't seen a lot of other forms of, of those kinds of initiatives elsewhere in Western Canada. There are uh, basically what are public bus services being operated, particularly connecting northern and southern Manitoba that are being operated by First Nations governments. And in that sense, we see, I think, that kind of policy response and that kind of creativity and that adaptability occurring at the level of Indigenous governments. I think what we sort of haven't seen is a real way to kind of move this question along. And if you kind of examine the sort of the popular news response to these questions, it's really interesting that after every time there's a shuttering of, of one form of, of transit service or another, there's kind of a wave of critical engagement and popular attention. So when the STC was closed in 2017, when Greyhound pulled out of almost all of its Western Canadian routes with a handful of exceptions in 2018, then when Greyhound closed its remaining Canadian routes in 2021, there was a kind of a wave of attention. But what we haven't sort of seen is is that translate into some kind of more sort of sustained response. And I think one of the things that I was really struck by, like as a reader of the report of the National Inquiry, not as somebody who was involved in it, but as somebody who who read it, is the extent to which questions of transportation and transit justice, we might call it, are threaded through the report. And to the extent to which it forms actually a sort of a substantial kind of part of its sort of policy kind of recommendations. But I think what we haven't seen is that kind of responsiveness be translated into an awful lot of action. Certainly after 2018, uh, you know, organizations like the Native Women's Association of Canada issued kind of responses, certainly kind of Indigenous governments in, in the context of Manitoba have issued responses in each of these sort of contexts. What we haven't seen is there be a substantial response from either, um, certainly from the federal government and from few of the Western Canadian provincial governments. So right now, some of the transit, public transit services that operate into the province of Manitoba are operated by the province of Ontario, particularly connecting Manitoba to northwestern Ontario. So Ontario has had a bit of a of kind of a role, and the British Columbia government as well. But as far as I am aware, Manitoba and Saskatchewan have not. 
and Manitoba and Saskatchewan are also provincial contexts with particularly significant and well-documented kind of patterns of interpersonal and gender violence and with particular kinds of histories of um, violence against um, Indigenous women in particular. And so I think at some point it's, it, I guess, demanded on all of us that we that we pick up some of those, those points raised by the national inquiry, pick up some of those points raised by the responses of the NWAC and Indigenous governments and, and kind of make connections about those ongoing lived realities and the way that they are connected to what is both available and what isn't available and then the character of what is available as far as uh, public transit. And also, I think it ties to, to ideas about what's valuable, like this idea of investment and spending, because so often it seems like that's considered to be a bad thing. Like it's not politically cool to say, okay, our, if, we, if we get elected, we're going to spend all your money on something. But just that whole idea, it needs to go away because we it is exactly the idea of what's pressing, you know. So if there's a major climate disaster, which is happening more and more and more frequently, we don't question how much money we're going to spend on cleaning that up. It's like, of course, that needs to happen. We will spend millions. We're digging people out. We're, you know, all this kind of crisis. And I think COVID is another example of that. Of course, we're going to put all this money into it because it's a crisis, but it's harder to convince people before it's a crisis, it will cost less and it makes so much more sense because then we'll avoid a crisis. And then also, what are we trying to do here? Are we trying to save money or are we trying to like live on a planet that is inhabitable? And what is the cost of not being able to do that? It just, it just, it's an impossible question and then it seems like so often if we're only asking the kind of smaller questions well is the bus going to go from here to here then we don't have that bigger picture in mind if our big goal is not to destroy our planet which is really the only one that we have then how are we going to do that and then from there how can we consider that every single person and the non-human counts matter their lives matter so they need to be able to get around safely like what do they need in order to to survive and to have a, a good life one quote that i always remember from that al gore climate change movie from a long time ago now but he says something about you know oh maybe it was the second one anyway he says like I don't think we're going to be living on Mars, people. We can't even evacuate a city. <laughs> it's like that is a very good point, you know. So we better do better here. Yeah, if I could just add to that too. I think you know, like Adele said, one of the things that's really missing is sustained attention, and it, and it is a, a subject that we did thread throughout the report. But it's also that my impression from from listening to family members and survivors, but also just from this research and this work, is that you know, as we noted at the beginning of the podcast, it's not like people aren't drawn to this topic as like a an exciting topic. Like people don't generally gravitate toward transit as something that they're passionate about. And I think it's a bit of a miss in that way, right? Because it does kind of undergird so much of what is very prescient these days, right? Issues of violence, environmental issues, all of the things that people seem to be kind of, you know, wanting to talk about are actually embedded in these bigger questions around transit. Uh, but there's been, you know, no specific commissioner inquiry. I think a lack of sustained attention, you know, kind of flares up. But I think that too, it, you know, it, it is a reflection of 
the fact that public transit, you know, used to be, I think, something that a lot of different people used. And it's increasingly become kind of a segmented use area, right? Where typically people that are using public transit are often people who don't have any other choice because it's not like it's a great option necessarily, right? In a lot of places. So I think that the lack of sustained attention also has to do with the fact that there's lots of folks in particular demographics that aren't using it. And so it becomes, you know, it's a thing that you pay attention to for a minute because people are raising it. But if you're not actually interacting with transit or if you're not using it, then you don't necessarily, it's not top of mind, right? Even though it is so, so, so important. So I think that, you know, part of what needs to, to happen is sustained attention. But I think too, per what Jocelyn was talking about, you know, we have to be able to dream about what transit should look like. It can't always be a reactive process where you react to crumbling infrastructure and you kind of patch this part and you patch this part and you put a Band-Aid on that part. We really have to, I think, like as a society, reimagine what transit should and can do and then build that rather than just kind of scrambling around reacting to a crumbling infrastructure, you know, I think probably a fatally flawed kind of a system. And instead of doing that, actually imagine where we want to get to and do that. Thank you for those dynamic responses. While the Missing the Bus report was completed in December 2021, much of the data and literature reviewed in the report was published prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. How has public transit been impacted by the pandemic in Western Canada? And how will this affect the ability of people who aren't white cis men to travel and access resources? Well, I think to, to sort of go back to some of that point too, like the question of cost, and I think what costs are registered. And, and I think one of the things that we can also take out of some of the kind of initiatives that have been taken around kind of accounting as if women and unpaid domestic work mattered it is the, the enormous costs that are invested when there's limited available public transit, when people have to put huge amounts of kind of time and effort into navigating a system which is is kind of deeply flawed, when they have to put a lot of effort into doing their best to kind of maximize their own safety in a context that regularly undermines that in a way that, that are both kind of formal and informal. But it also plays out in our own kind of kind of lives. And I think Corinne talked about the way that what some of what's happened is what scholars of transit kind of talk about is sort of the move to automotility, this kind of idea that everybody who has at all kind of any choice in the matter is kind of compelled to move to the having the private automobile because it is the way that the society increasingly is organized around. And in that move to automotility, I think one of the things we see is that it varies the costs within individuals rather within a wider society. And so the costs of purchasing and then maintaining and insuring and then the labor of, of kind of keeping cars up also tends to be kind of rendered invisible. So we need to think about costs differently as well, both in terms of what appear to be kind of individual 
and sometimes family decisions, but what are in fact kind of wider social ones when we think about questions about kind of time and resources and all of those things, which tend to be kind of unmarked when we're thinking about cars. And that's some of the way that kind of the logic of automotility kind of works. And environmental costs too, right? That those aren't even calculated in terms of the actual dollars. And yet we see the cost of not counting those costs. (laughs) But I think it's also like when you start to realize the flawed character of, let's say, the transit system, you also see that lots of our world doesn't make a lot of sense, you know? So for example, transporting an apple from South Africa to Winnipeg, it just, in one way, it's like, oh, it makes sense because here it is in my hand, it happened. And then in another way, the system is so very, I don't know, skewed towards a dependence upon fossil fuels. The idea that, you know, you can grow something one place and send it across the world, which happens with clothing, with, you know, all of these things. And so then once you start to kind of dig in, then you have a, oh my goodness, this is a very big situation, right? And and then it does become hard not to just become frozen, you know, and then think, I guess all I can do is go to the farmer's market and make sure my apples don't come from South Africa. And then, you know, so it's like how you kind of balance recognizing that the system is built on a particular history and legacy of colonization that also is about fossil fuel dependence and and global movements and that a change in that system is big, but also needs to be imagined and then also needs to be put into practice in in local ways. And so it is that kind of balance of big picture, small actions, which again, isn't new because remember, think global, act local. Sticker from the past. Always a good slogan. As Adele was saying, the literature review performed in Missing the Bus highlights the absences, ellipses, and silences apparent in the thematic intersection of gender, sexuality, indigeneity, and transit in Western Canada? In what spaces are scholarly literature, popular media, and grey literature intersecting? And where do the gaps remain in this literature? Yeah, so at its core, this project was what they call kind of a knowledge synthesis project. So in a sense, what the goal of it is, is to, to synthesize existing knowledge and to kind of note where there are gaps, where there are issues that that are poorly understood and poorly researched and make some attention to those. So one of the things that we did along with some very effective and outstanding research assistants, in particular Sarah Hurry, Batel Bellachu, and Hannah Bowers, and also Kayla Riviere, we did searches of kind of the existing academic sort of literature, also searches of kind of media, both digital and print, and also searches of what we call kind of gray literature, which sort of research and writing that, that is sort of produced outside of standard academic context, but are generated out of kind of community context, policy discussions, and, and the like. And what we found is, you know, a pretty patchy kind of context where where these sorts of questions have not sort of been raised in a sort of a sustained um the national inquiry is is an outlier there in the sense that it examined these questions i think 
with a pretty significant degree of attention. But I think other than that, you know, a lot of the way that transit is discussed and not discussed doesn't have some questions at forefront of mind. I think that was less true for work that kind of was produced in response to both the closure of the STC and Greyhound's withdrawal from most of its Western Canadian routes, where there was sort of a wave, there was a couple of waves of kind of feminist Indigenous responses to that that looked at these questions in much the way that our report did was was through these lenses of, of what this meant for those kinds of questions and contexts. But what we also see is a real kind of sense that we don't know a lot of these basic kind of questions. Who uses these sorts of transit services? And that is true for bus and rails that link settlements, so intercity ones, but it's also true for a lot of questions of kind of urban transit. And while they're kind of separate questions, they're not entirely separate questions. So there's a lot that we don't know. And all of it has changed like so much else by the last years of the pandemic. Um, Transit usage in the city of Winnipeg and elsewhere took a real nosedive during COVID. And that is something that I think has not bounced back in any real sense um, in the last little while as this sort of society makes this kind of prolonged and kind of difficult kind of transitions to attempt to resume certain aspects of kind of former patterns of kind of work and community. And to what extent the pandemic will play into these histories where we see increasing levels of kind of withdrawal of funding and support for public transit, I think is a really genuine concern. I think the only way to kind of turn that around a little bit is to kind of go back to some of the things that Jocelyn and Corinne mentioned earlier, which is that perhaps the pandemic kind of provides a a moment of kind of reflection and potentially a kind of reset on certain questions. And as we think about what it means to go back, um, we can perhaps think about what it means to go back in ways that are different and perhaps better, um, better in general, and in particular better uh, for particular groups of people. Yeah, um, Winona LaDuke in her new book talks about the idea of crisis as opportunity. And I think that's what the hope is indeed. Uh, and it, I guess people did really have a chance to think about what's important and to realize how few things are necessary. And perhaps all of us had an opportunity to think about where our jobs were in terms of that, right? And that like, groceries, healthcare, you know, it's like what we need is the very basic things. And it seems like each other time, you know, all of these things. And so now that things are going back, it is really interesting and a little bit upsetting to see that people are returning their puppies that they got and returning their bicycles that they got, because it seems like, you know, there was this moment and then then it seems like it's like, okay, well, we're back. We better get rid of all that stuff and get back on airplanes and whatever. And I think some things are not able to return. Like the fact is that underlying any kind of war in Ukraine or 
pandemic, like we have a global environmental crisis. And so things like heat waves are not stopping. And so, and the pandemic is not stopping. So things are not this. Um, and yet there seems to be kind of a push to return to some kind of normal. So I think that is, is my hope as well. What Adele said that it's like that, that when we stop and we have the opportunity to, to see how we can do things very differently. For example, everybody going remote, almost everybody suddenly like that, like we can really change things really quickly. And then to apply that knowledge to doing things differently in general, I think that is, it's like we have to push that. And and Winona Leduc's idea of like crisis is opportunity, you know, that certain things happen, but they reveal certain possibilities and that the push can be there too. I would just add to that to say that I think, you know, one of the dangers is also the opportunity and that now that we understand that we can do all these things remotely, and in fact, you don't have to go out that much to get what you need, or you can get there some other way. There is the side shadow threat that, in fact, the rationale for bolstering or strengthening public transit is actually eclipsed by the fact that there's just not that many people that are needing to commute to work anymore like there used to be, particularly in very large centers, or that there's just not that many, there's not kind of that much of a need to get people around. Because, for example, if you're in a remote community and your doctor's appointments are now online, you know, and you don't have to travel in, then it provides the rationale for cutting back further. So, I, you know, I would just say to that that it's something to watch in the same way that policies are often constructed to be blind in their creation, but they're not blind in their application, right? Uh, this is one of those things. The pandemic is one of those things that I think, you know, can potentially have negative impacts if we kind of drop the ball and stop watching it. So it, it's for sure something to watch and to keep our eyes on because I can see where it goes the other way. And I think that for lots of folks, that's a particularly scary option because less than, than what currently exists, which is already minimal, I think further exacerbates some of the threats and some of the dangers that folks may have. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with, with all of that. I think one of the other things that I think that we also saw come up is, is also some of the, the ways that some of the responses to questions, like very real questions of sort of safety, not just in the absence of public transit, but in and around public transit are, are very enduring questions. And they have been ones that have been you know, raised really in multiple contexts for a long time and for very good reason. But I think one of the things that we've seen, even within the urban context of Winnipeg in the last couple of months, and certainly within the last year or so, is this idea that issues of kind of sort of safety and the absence of it, that they're kind of best addressed through securitization. And I think another thing that kind of came up in our, in our report in particular is the extent to which kind of thinking from kind of Black feminists and Indigenous feminist kind of perspectives um, gets us to think kind of differently about the impact of sort of securitization and particularly on different groups of people. And so I think another thing that kind of came up is sort of a caution around seeing the use of kind of either private or other forms of securitization as a solution to what are very real problems around violence and safety and who is able to be safe in different spaces. 
and the need to think differently around those particular questions. Well, I, I think I can speak to some of the gaps and we identified in the report four. So the first kind of area where, where we noted some gaps was the experiences of diverse Indigenous people and transit with intersectional frameworks. So certainly there's a lot of work needed to uh, try to fill some of those gaps because we transit is one of those things that's poorly understood, but it's also even more poorly understood in the case of different populations or specific populations. For example, you know, the considerations that need to inform how transit is designed for people traveling uh, from remote communities into larger centers, the way that design needs to be kind of uh, reflected to accommodate, you know, people with disabilities or people who feel unsafe in regular transit. These are all kind of pieces that we need to know and that need to be more studied because there's kind of those cases where we've heard a lot about them, like the Highway of Tears, but there's a lot of other cases and other communities that remain poorly or underserviced with very little research that actually necessarily speaks to the needs of the folks that that are that, that they need to use the service to be honest the second kind of area that we that we looked at and that kind of overlaps with the first is this issue of regional and local considerations including rural and urban so you know the necessarily localized nature of transit means that more study is needed to understand the lived experience of transit users and use that information to improve or address the inequities that remain. The third area, again, connected to the first two, is around what good transportation looks like for different folks, including specifically questions of safety and access. And we dealt with this in the context of the inquiry, you know, safety looks different to different people. And it feels different to different people. So what does good transportation or adequate transportation look like for different groups of people? And how does that change uh, with respect to safety and to the ability to access it? And then lastly, the last kind of area that we noted is this issue of a lack of data around this issue. When people, and you know, I work in government now, and when people are looking to make decisions in government, they're always looking for data to support the business case, essentially, for offering or not offering a service. And I think one of the challenges in transit is that there just aren't the data available to support the cases for looking at transit very differently, you know, as a human right or something that all people should be able to access, you know, for key things that they need. And so, you know, when transit uh, is not available to support your right to access medical care, for example, where are the data that speak to that? So I think that, you know, and we all kind of agreed that one of the things that's really needed here, the need to provide decision makers with better information, whereby they can move forward with thinking about, you know, dreaming differently about transit, or looking at it from a needs based or a user based perspective. So those are really the areas that we identified. And I would say that, you know, in terms of what they have in common, there is a current, I would say, and I'd be eager to hear from Adele or Joss on what they thought, 
I think there is a current that is starting to look at this idea of mobility justice and starting to see transit as a conduit towards other things. So like the idea that it's a, you know, better transit is a conduit towards improving the environment or as a conduit toward ensuring access to education or employment or training for Indigenous people or anyone else that needs it is starting to grow. And I personally, you know, I saw it obviously in the National Inquiry Report because I helped draft it, but I saw it in other places too. We saw it in, in popular media and we saw it in some of the scholarly literature. So that's one of the things I think that's kind of emerging is I guess a greater realization maybe about the importance and and how it connects to all these other issues. Yeah. One thing that the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Report talks about is the way in which racism and sexism work together to blame the victims for their own experiences of violence. And this connects to transit because, well, Corinne gave the example of the Highway of Tears, but this idea that Oh, you know, this this girl put herself in a dangerous situation and therefore it's her fault uh, because she hitchhiked. And it's it's one of those things that if we instead think about like people in general as on the one hand, yes, they're diverse riderships, but on the other hand, as people want often the same things from transit. They want to arrive safely in a timely manner, in comfortable circumstances. And so what that might look like might be different. So if you are in a wheelchair or have a stroller, you might need a different way of accessing transit comfortably and safely than you do if you are a person running up and down stairs. So having an elevator matters more for some people than other people. But still, having the elevator there that is serviceable and, you know, comfortable and safe makes it possible for more people to access transit. And so I think there's a way in which when we think about, like, the diverse groups as so diverse, it's actually not so much that. It's like when Black people are targeted on transit by transit police, they are not able to get there safely. And so that's not a matter of like, that's a matter of racism and how racism works. And so (laughs) having the kind of framework of people want the same things of transit, but they need different things to allow that to happen is maybe a helpful way to think about it because nobody wants to be targeted by the police. The fact is that some groups are targeted by the police. And so the people who aren't targeted by the police might not write on their list of recommendations for transit. I don't want to be targeted by the police because it's not even like that's how privilege works. It's not even on their radar to say that they don't want it, but they don't want it for sure. And so that idea that like people in general are trying to make their lives work the best way that they can and that they're not actually making stupid choices in order to put themselves in danger is maybe just kind of a helpful way to think about it. And then, and and also the idea of putting in place the knowledge that we do have in order to create a system that works. Like, uh, so for example, in Edmonton with creating winter bike lanes, then what the people, the city planners noticed there is that when they cleared the bike lanes, people used them, which in a way is kind of obvious, but there's another way in which you'd be like, Edmonton, it's too cold to ride your bike in the winter, right? And But it's the building and the maintenance of that that then makes people think, oh, this is safe. This is good exercise. You know, it makes more people think of it, be able to think about it as an option that makes sense. Thank you for this wonderfully informative discussion. 
Do you have any last comments? Where is the report available? Yeah, so the report is available on the Center for Human Rights Research website, which if you search on University of Manitoba, Center for Human Rights Research, Missing the Bus, you should get there pretty expeditiously. Um, but it was also part of a program that was funded jointly by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and Infrastructure Canada. And all of the executive summaries of those different projects are available on the SHRC website. And so one of the things that we did find in doing this work is that there were a number of other groups of folks across the country, including um, a group at the University of Regina, um, another group at the University of Manitoba led by Orly Lifnowski and also by Heather Dorries at the University of Toronto and Cheryl Simpson at Carleton University. Um, but there was a number of other groups who were kind of working us sort of on similar questions of trying to kind of uh, read questions of transit and mobility through sort of feminist and indigenous and kind of black studies scholarship in a range of different ways to sort of come at questions of mobility through that kind of intersectional justice lens. And so you can read all of our summaries on those reports and all of the reports are available somewhere online. So find that out if you're interested. The link to the Missing the Bus report on the Center for Human Rights Research website will be in the description for this podcast. Thank you all for your time today and for your exceptional and important research on Missing the Bus. As well, a special thank you to Melody McIver for allowing us to use a section of her beautiful composition, Cogs in the Wheel, for this podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Olivia.